Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This week's story, Immunity for Murder, is an unusual one in a number of ways. First, we're presented in five parts, which will be released each day for five days, Sunday through Thursday. Second, this story concerns a tragic miscarriage of justice. It's an eye-opener with regard to how easily law enforcement and the justice system can go wrong, and why and how they do so. Third, it's a true crime story, as well as an important history, which points out the strengths and weaknesses of our justice system here in America. Fourth, this story contains explicit descriptions of a crime committed, as well as explicit language, so I don't recommend it for pre-adults. Each episode will be marked explicit. In the small city of Binghamton, New York, 23-year-old Veronica Taft, a single mother with four small children, all under the age of five, was convicted of murder and manslaughter for the brutal murder of her two-year-old son, Lyric. The investigation was very poorly handled, as you will see. The prosecutor ignored justice for his own benefit, and pressure was placed on the entire circle of investigators and key witnesses to provide an engineered outcome that suited the prosecutor's theory, which was dead wrong. You will literally be stunned at the miscarriage of justice here, which continues throughout this story. The only thing Veronica Taft is guilty of in this story is making some terrible life choices, but not murder. This story is titled Immunity for Murder, and the author is David Beers, who gave us Reign of Injustice, a story which we covered in April. We'll present this interview in five parts, and this is the first, part one. David, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, this was another story that uh, after it was all over, I uh, felt compelled to write it. So uh, because it was such a tragic uh, miscarriage of justice. For those listeners who are new to our show, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in law enforcement and investigation. I started my career in law enforcement after I was discharged from the Marine Corps. I served in the Marine Corps for six years. I uh, I was discharged uh, honorably as a staff sergeant. Then I became a sworn, sworn member of the New York State Police uh, back in 1977. And I served for about nine years as a uniform trooper. And then I was promoted to investigator. And I worked in several different capacities, including uh, narcotics, major crimes, violent felony warrants, and then uh, I also worked as a in the forensic identification unit as a crime scene investigator. After after my career with the state police, I went into private practice uh, doing invest, investigative work, and primarily working in the private sector, doing criminal defense work. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, this took this took place in the in the city of Binghamton. Binghamton is located in south central New York, uh, just above the Pennsylvania border, about 200 miles uh, upstate from, from uh, New York City. Yeah, it's got a population of about 200,000 in the county, and I think about 20,000 in the city itself. When did this incident happen, and exactly what happened? Veronica Taft uh, had, a fur, had a full-time job doing maintenance work at the local high school, Binghamton High School. She'd been working there for about six or eight weeks doing maintenance work on the night shift. She left her house uh, just before 11 o'clock on the 29th of December, and her boyfriend, Chucky Pratt, babysat the children while she was at work. 
you mentioned earlier, she had four small children all under the age of five. So she went to work and worked all night. And she came home in the morning a little after seven. And the kids were still asleep. And Chucky, Chucky met her at the door and assured her that the kids were fine and said she was tired and she should just go right to bed and, and, and rest while the kids were, were sleeping for a while. So she did. And then uh, they woke up and she heard the girls uh, getting up and wondered why Chucky hadn't gone in to, to get him out of bed for, for breakfast. So he goes in and comes back and tells her that her son Lyric won't get up. He, he's cold, not moving, not breathing, and he's blue. Of course, she's startled and she's stunned and says, "What do you mean he's? What do you mean he's cold? What do you mean he's not breathing? Bring him to me." You know. So he runs back in, picks up Lyric and brings him to his mother, and he is in fact purple colored and not breathing. So. She uh, kind of slaps him on the back, trying to revive him, and then starts CPR, and then yells to Chucky to call 911. And she's just frantic, and she snatches the phone away from him and makes the call herself. At the same time, she's running out into the street screaming uh, for her neighbors, you know, call the police, and does anyone know CPR? So a neighbor who heard her ran across the street and ran upstairs with her and they together they started CPR trying to revive Lyric and while the uh, ambulance was on its way and the ambulance arrived within a couple of minutes they they were just a couple blocks away and then EMTs ran upstairs and kind of took over the CPR but the lead EMT recognized how dire the situation was and he immediately just scooped up Lyric into his arms and rushed him down the stairs into the ambulance. And uh, Veronica was right behind him and she jumps into the ambulance with her son and they're off to the emergency room. Uh, Chucky remained behind and just kind of stood there. So she gets to the hospital and of course the police, have, they're on the scene as well because the call came in as a child not breathing. So they responded as well. So Veronica goes to the hospital the police talk to Chucky briefly and then take him to their station and then uh, go right over to the hospital to try to talk to Veronica while she's in the waiting room to hear about the status of her son. Is that normal procedure to do that? Uh, yeah, under the okay. circumstances, it was it was normal procedure, you know, because uh, EMTs had noticed uh, a lot of bruising uh, on the on the child. So so that's why the police were, were interested in, in pursuing this. Uh, so, so they wanted to talk to Veronica at the hospital. Uh, so while, while Lyric was uh, in the emergency room, she was in the waiting area, and, and the police took advantage of uh, that time to talk with her a little bit. But the doctors and the staff worked on Lyric rather feverishly for a better part of an hour. But when he first arrived, he was already cold, not breathing, no pulse, no respiration, no blood pressure. And his body temperature, uh, as soon as he got there, they took his body temperature, and it had already plunged uh, to like 86 degrees. So it was pretty critically low. So they, they stripped off his clothing. He just had a, a hoodie on and a, and a diaper uh, when he arrived. And they replaced those with warm compresses and blankets. 
and then they pumped a warm saline solution into his stomach to try to warm him from the inside out. But despite all their efforts over that length of time, uh, nothing changed. His uh, body monitor remained flatlined uh, throughout, and his temperature continued to drop. So about a, about an hour later, we're talking a little after 12 noon, just after noon that day. Now now we're into the December 30th. Uh, they were forced to make the call, and, and they pronounced him dead. And then they had to notify Veronica. Then they, they also ordered a CT scan of his body. Uh, is that correct? Correct. And at that point, they were not only convinced from what they saw uh, physically, but also what the CT scan revealed. And what did that reveal? Yes, the, the emergency doctors, uh, of course, they recognized the, uh, the trauma to his body. Uh, he had bruising all over his body. He had some uh, uh, bruising on his chest, his back, his, uh, his neck, uh, his head, front and back. And they had some gouge marks on his neck that, that they believed resembled having been caused by fingernails. Uh, so the suspicion was that he'd been the, the victim of an assault. They weren't ruling out an accident yet, but they were seriously looking at this as, a, uh, as an assault. So that's why the police were involved, and they, they went there to take pictures of lyrics injuries and that type of thing. So... Uh, yeah, they did a CT scan and they, uh, they, they discovered the, the head injuries and that type of thing. Uh, that was all part of the work that was done at the emergency room. But after he was pronounced dead, then they, uh, the, they ordered an autopsy and they turned over all their records to the uh, forensic pathologist who was going to perform the autopsy the next day. And that was Dr. James Turgeon? Correct. Yeah, he was contacted. He was a forensic medical examiner that worked right there at that same hospital where, it, where uh, he was taken. So he was contacted by the police, and he, he agreed to do the autopsy the next morning. I want to make a note at this point, the words spoken to Veronica by Chucky when he returned to her bedroom after checking on the children and said that uh, Lyric was purple. Yeah. And the first thing he told her was, yo, the N-word's not getting up. So he called Lyric the N-word, yeah. or the little yeah. N-word. He did. He, he, that's how he referred to him. He and, said, the uh, N-word's not breathing, he be cold. Yep, not breathing. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Uh, and he repeated that later when he was in the interrogation room on the telephone with his brother and his friend. Uh, yeah, that's the type of language he was using, referring to Lyric. I guess you could say that with the interviews that were scheduled now, we go into a lengthy amount of intervie interviews and, with both Chucky and... Veronica Taft. Yeah. Explain the interview with Chucky. Who sat down with Chucky and what did they do and what didn't they do? Chucky was brought into the interrogation room fairly early, right right from the scene. They brought him over. So he was there. He was there for that hour uh, before Veronica got there because she was still at the hospital waiting for word on Lyric. So the police had him in an interrogation room and uh uh, he was he was kind of flipping out, and he uh, he lawyered up right away. Uh, he's yelling and screaming, and uh, very very unfriendly. And investigators tried to calm him down. But the odd thing was, uh, John, they uh, they allowed him to keep his cell phone, which is usually against the rules. He was he was on the phone with his brother, his stepbrother, and and his best friend uh, Max, 
and he was telling them all kinds of things. You you could only hear his side of the conversation, but uh, it was pretty revealing what what he was saying. Uh, and he's talking about lyric, and he's talking about uh, Veronica, and uh, when he put in the bed and that type of thing. Uh, so it was pretty uh, pretty interesting listening to uh, to him alone in the room, uh, talking to his uh, friend and his brother. And then finally the police came in and, and uh, told them they needed to take his phone. Well, that didn't go over too well. He got, he got upset about that. Uh, didn't want to give up his phone. And he, and he demanded a lawyer right away. I'm going to stop you for just a second. What were some of the things he was saying? He was, he was talking to them on the phone. He was also talking to himself for long periods of time. In some ways, he was incriminating himself, was he not? Uh, yeah. One of the things that really jumped out at me was uh, one of the things he said to, I believe it was his brother, his stepbrother, or Max. I can't remember which one for right now. But he's, he, he talked about, you know, he's referring to Lyric, and he, and he says, uh, you know, this little, the N-word again, uh, is running around doing mad shit. And that ain't right. <laughs> you know, so he's making a reference to, uh, you know, seeing Lyric and Lyric being alive while he was there babysitting. So that, that was one of the things that jumped out at me. I'm trying to think of the other things. Uh, there was, they were pretty bizarre. And he's complaining about how long he's been waiting there. And he's only been there a few minutes. And nobody's talking to him. Nobody else is there. I'm the only black guy in here. And I was the only black guy in that house. And they're looking at me like a suspect. They're looking at me like I'm the killer. Uh, so he's saying all of these things, and they all they all kind of jumped out at me. And of course, the police were just trying to reason with him to get him to talk or, or calm down. And it, it took quite a while before he he finally did calm down. There was a one of the investigators come in and used a little more tactful approach with him, and uh, finally got him to calm down a little bit. He, he's concerned about what there's that they're talking with Veronica and not him. And he says, you know, well, why isn't she here? And, and, you know, the investigator says, you know, how do you know she isn't, you know, and that type of thing. And uh, he was just very, uh, very hyper, very... Uh, Possibly very high, too, right? Probably high on drugs. Uh, that was certainly my impression, that uh, that he, he was just kind of bouncing off the walls, practically, and uh, wouldn't settle down. Uh, he was on his feet most of the time. Eventually... And another investigator came in, uh, Tom Eggleston. He was the detective, uh, in, uh, sergeant in charge of the de detectives. And he spoke with them. And uh, he, he had calmed down a little bit by then, but you know, Eggleston had to be rather firm with him and tell him to, you know, to listen to him. And Chucky finally, uh, finally listened to him and, uh, and said that he wanted to talk to him. But the investigators had already told him that, you know, you asked for a lawyer, so we're kind of limited as to what we can talk to you about. But but he insisted he still wanted to talk. So so at this point, of course, all of this is being recorded, and the district attorney was in the squad room listening to all this, so he was aware of Chucky's uh, demand for an attorney. So he likely advised the police that anything he said after that, you know, even if incriminating, couldn't be used against him. But like I said, he, he still insisted on, on wanting to tell his story 
about what happened that night. So he, he basically described uh, coming over there to start babysitting for Veronica. He'd been doing it for a few weeks. And he got there, and uh, then Veronica went to work. And then he later told him that he, he fed the kids, fixed four plates, one for each of the kids, one for his brother. Then he later said that all, all four plates were clean. His, his interview was, was pretty bizarre. You'd, you'd have to really see it. I, I tried to explain it the best I could in the in the book because it was pretty amazing. One point, Chucky said, I put the girls in their room as soon as their mother left because she gave, matter of fact, she went in the room and gave the girls kisses and Lyric and all them kisses before she went to work. So she was in the room with them, he said. Yeah, uh, he did say that, yes. Now he had, he had bruises, he had bloody knuckles on both of his hands. And they asked yeah, him, how did your hands get bloody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they first brought him into the interview room that morning and they're they're talking to him, it was it was right near the end of his interview when uh, he'd asked for a cigarette. And so they 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 accommodated him, got a cigarette, and as they were handing it to him and, and lighting it, he reached for it and they noticed his knuckles were bleeding on both hands. Both hands. And they, and they both they, the investigators commented on that and he explained to them that he had bloodied his knuckles because he was so frustrated about what happened to Lyric when it first happened that he punched the wall in, in the living room w with each fist. How many holes were there in the wall? It was one, one hole, it, it was a big hole. It was about four and a half feet off the floor. I believe it was like eight inches or so in diameter. Kind of, so unusual, kind of unusual for him to bloody both fists on one hole, isn't it? I would think, uh, you know, it didn't make much sense to me that he would punch the hole with both fists, but he did. That's what that was his explanation. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to assume now that the, the investigators, the detectives, uh, actually took a sample uh, from underneath his fingernails and a blood sample from him. Did they did they do that? I'm I'm going to guess he had bloody hands. There's been a murder. I'm sure that that's what they did. Is that right? That would have been the uh, the appropriate thing to do, but they didn't. Uh, and they they also knew, uh, John, that because they had sent an investigator to the hospital, they already knew and had pictures of Lyric's neck showing the gouge, gouge marks. That they're like crescent-shaped, look just like they came from fingernails. But yet, when they learn about the bloody knuckles, I can't explain it, but they didn't take any DNA. They didn't take fingernail scrapings they didn't even take a picture of, of his of his bloody knuckles any reason just just uh not un, just not professional is that the only I, thing I, you can I, put I, on it or yeah, were they... I, can't, I can't explain it just it just didn't register with them i but i it, because I Dial, dials and eggleston they were pretty much thinking pratt did it right you would absolutely. think that they would have done those things absolutely and, and those in that first the first day or two of this investigation, all eyes were on Chucky Pratt. They were even telling Veronica that it looked as though Chucky had done this while she was at work. Now she she left for work, according to her statement and his statement. Were his, were their statements different on when she went to work that night? Not at all. He uh, they were both consistent with that. Nine p.m. Uh, Eleven p.m. Eleven p.m. She went to work. Yeah, she, okay. she worked the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. So, and that's what that's what Veronica told the police that first day, right at the hospital. 
I, I worked last night from 11 to 7. So when I got home and all this happened, I don't know what happened because Chucky was there. I wasn't. So they wanted to verify her, her work alibi. So once they, once they found out what the time of death was, the estimated time of death from the medical examiner who did the autopsy the next morning, uh, they went to the high school and verified Veronica's work alibi. And they verified it four ways. And, and everything lined right up. It was exactly what she had told them. They interviewed two coworkers who both said she was there and worked all night, never left. They also checked her time cards, which showed she was there. They also checked the phone records uh, because she used to use the work phone to call Chucky and check on the kids. And sometimes she'd call her mom and her best friend, and, and she had done that on this night. So the phone records confirmed that. And on top of that, the final thing they did was they pulled the video footage from some of the street cams that they have strategically located throughout the city. And it showed Veronica getting picked up at her house by her coworker just before 11. And then again, around 7.15 in the morning, leaving the school and walking home. So were there, I was solid. There were other people in the apartment that night, is that correct? At what, at what hours were they in there? And what testimony did they give? The, the, the only, there was two other people that were, that were there, one of them very briefly. Um, when, when Chucky first got there to babysit, he probably got there around 10, 15, 10, 30. And short, a few minutes after he arrived, his brother came in, his stepbrother, Jamel. And right behind him was a girl who lived in the apartment or, or visited the apartment downstairs. Her name was Lynette, Lynette Pica. And she knew, she knew uh, Veronica and she wanted to speak with her. So she came in and she sat on the bed in Veronica's room while she was getting dressed for work. And they talked about making plans for New Year's. But Jamel stayed there even after Veronica left for work. His brother, had him had him stay there and uh, he fixed dinner for the kids you know uh, Chucky did and then he fixed a plate of dinner for his brother as well now his did, brother did, 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 did Jamel or Veronica's friend did either of them see Lyric in their testimony that evening yes uh, Jamel kind of backed up his brother by claiming that he never saw Lyric but Lynette she gave conflicting uh, statements to the police. Uh, the first time, she didn't say much of anything at all. But when they w interviewed her the second time, she said that she'd actually gone up there right behind Jamel. And she went in and, and talked with uh, Veronica. And she said that she saw all the kids, including Lyric. And she, she actually said that Lyric actually spoke to her because apparently Lyric thought she had frightened the baby, Zoe, and, and told her to leave her alone. And she, and she remembered that, and she told the police that, and it was in their report. Did they ask her what Lyric was wearing? No. They, they never asked what Lyric was wearing. That, that's a whole nother, uh, <laughs> whole nother issue. And we'll you, get to that, I know. Yeah, yeah. We'll return with more of our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to part one of Immunity for Murder by David Beers. 
We've covered the Pratt interview. David, let's cover the Taft interview, Veronica Taft interview, and, and what was taken there. Yeah, the first part of her interview, uh, John, took place at the hospital uh, while she was waiting to hear for word on Lyric. And, of course, once she, uh, once she learned that he had died, uh, she was pretty devastated. She was in a state of shock, really distraught. But despite all that, even though she, you know, she needed some grief counseling or what have you, uh, they took her back to their station and put her in an interrogation room and, and then went in and uh, you know, questioned her further. In fairness, they, uh, the interview with Veronica that first day, you know, they treated her pretty decent. Uh, they did challenge her a couple times on some uh, inconsistencies in her statement, but nothing significant. And she was a uh, compared to Chucky. She was she was the total opposite. She was calm, for the most part. She was she was you could tell she was upset because she was like rocking back and forth subconsciously. And like Chucky, uh, at times when she was left alone in the room, uh, she can be heard talking out loud, talking to herself, and just uh, opening right up about her feelings uh, about what happened to her son and how this could happen and uh, trying to figure out what happened and why and you know why is this happening to me and it was pretty emotional to listen to her uh, testimony or her talking to herself and she did it repeatedly uh, until the police came back in and then they started questioning her and she answered all of their questions as best she could from from what she could remember at the time you know, keeping in mind that she was still traumatized and she may forget things or may not get all the details accurate. Yeah, she was she she was just she was just she was kind of in shock. She was mourning the loss of her baby and she was blaming yeah. herself for not being there, for being away at work. Uh, yeah. And she really just sad. kept pounding herself, uh, calling herself an idiot and uh just all the pain and all the agony and all the remorse is there and all the guilt, of course, for not being there. Yeah, she's, she's blaming herself. You know, I never should have gone to work. I should have stayed home. Uh, you know, this, this never should have happened. I should have been there. So, yeah, she's, she's blaming herself. And she, like I wrote in the book, I, I, I described it as, you know, a, a person who's uh, experiencing that uh, survivor's guilt when something like this happens. She was interviewed for hours. I mean, and she was in bad shape. She had found that she had been informed that her two-year-old son was dead. Uh, she had doubts in her mind as to how it had happened. She didn't want to believe that it could have been Chucky, but on the other hand, she knew that he was the one who was with, who was with Lyric. Yeah, and the yeah, interviews yeah. seemed to last for hours. At what point did the investigations opinions on who murdered Lyric change? At what point did their opinions shift? And what caused that shift away from Pratt to her? You know, that's a real good question. And uh, the best I can determine, uh, I don't know why it shifted, but I, I, I have an idea uh, of why it shifted. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that uh, Pratt had lawyered up so quickly and they were probably struggling to come up with a motive for Chucky to have done this. And the other thing was, uh, well, when Veronica came back in a couple of days later for a second interview, 
the police had been talking to some other witnesses who were saying some rather harsh things about Veronica, that she was abusive to her children, uh, neglected them. She was a drug user, uh, used to cook crack in her bathtub, just about anything you could think of. And CPS had been involved with her in her life uh, many times. Child, so protect, said, Child Protective Services. Child Protective Services was, was involved a lot uh, in her her life. And she had a bunch of rotten neighbors in that neighborhood where she was, uh, women who had actually stolen from her, women who didn't like her, and they were more than anxious to tell the Child Protective Services of all the uh, rumored things that Veronica had done, which were later proven to be lies. Is that correct? That's correct. They uh, And that could have swayed the investigation as well. It probably did. I'm sure it did. I, I'm sure they viewed her as a an unfit mother, abusive mother, and so they started targeting her as a suspect within 48 hours. It was this that they just ignored everything that pointed to Chucky and went after her. I couldn't understand it. Like I said, other than the fact that he had lawyered up, I understand that that would make it difficult to prosecute him. But the evidence was still coming out over the next few days and everything was still pointing to to Chucky. It, one one of the things was, uh, you know, they interviewed Jamel, the stepbrother, a couple of times, and they were they were telling him, they were telling him that it that according to their investigation and the autopsy, it was clear that Lyric had been killed during the early morning hours, but yet they're still looking at Veronica as a suspect. That just never made any sense to me, because Dr. Terzian. Uh, during the autopsy, using Lyric's body temperature, you know, calculated that and estimated that the time of death was between 3 and 4 a.m. So that's smack dab in the middle of her alibi time period. So, so I don't know how she could possibly have done this. So it was rather bizarre that they uh, seemed to ignore that part of the investigation and started concentrating on what these other witnesses were saying. Well, what was really tragic here was that a good investigation could have really swung them back again. But the investigation was mishandled, wasn't it? And how was it mishandled? Oh, it was mishandled in so many ways. Uh, you know, I don't like playing Monday morning quarterback, but, you know, in my experience, you know, the, the crime scene was uh, was uh, investigation and uh, processing of the scene was was incomplete. It was lousy. They didn't do things that should have been done. You can go into detail on this because it's important to this whole case and this story. I mean, so what jumped out at me, just so many things, but, you know, being a crime scene investigator myself, I found it rather remarkable that they could process uh, a suspected homicide scene in an hour, an <laughs> hour and four minutes. That's how much time they spent there that first on that first search warrant. And there are just so many things that they didn't do. Uh, you know, and it becomes even more important when, when there's when there's a lack of evidence because we, we I haven't explained this yet, but uh, Lyric's uh, injuries were all internal. He had no external injuries other than the marks in his neck. So the doctors said there was no external bleeding. So that means there would be no bloodletting at the crime scene. So absent blood at the crime scene, you, you you've got to look for other things 
they they did focus in the bedroom where where Lyric was found, and they, and they took pictures and made a diagram of the bedroom. But you know, they never looked. Uh, they never they they never documented the the kitchen or the living room or Veronica's bedroom or the bathroom. They took pictures there, uh, but they didn't they didn't look in the laundry. They didn't look in the cupboards and cabinets and garbage bags. You know, those are all elementary things you do when you're looking for evidence. When you're and looking they, for evidence, do you also look in the drains for blood? At times, absolutely. I've done it several times. They open up the traps and get samples. Sure. Uh, and, when you, and when you, and when you, stomach contents, don't they look at stomach contents? <laughs> absolutely. And uh, while we're on that topic, you know, Dr. Terzian, during the autopsy, recovered uh, stomach contents from Lyric, about 50 grams worth of uh, uh, material that he, that he couldn't identify visually, but he did preserve it and had it frozen for further study. But then and, then later, he says, uh, when he was asked if, if he ever uh, had that examined, he said, well, I tried to find somebody, but I couldn't. And then that that just didn't make any sense to me, none, none whatsoever. There isn't there isn't a crime lab I know of that can't do that. That's amazing. What would the stomach contents have told the investigation? That would have been crucial because uh, of two things. Earlier in the day, on the 29th, there was a daytime babysitter there who was watching the kids while Veronica was doing some shopping. And around five o'clock that evening, he fed he fed all the kids just uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So that was Lyric's last known meal before Veronica got home from shopping and before she went to work. But Chucky tells the police, and Veronica backed it up, that after she went to work, he fed them some tater tots and fries, French fries, and some mac and cheese. So the, the stomach contents for Lyric would have been crucial because it would have, it, it could only have been one of two things the remnants of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or potatoes. Which means that he was alive after which, she went to work. Which, which would have Huge. proved one way or the other. So uh, it makes you he, wonder whose side Terzian was on. Yeah, that, that's exactly. Uh, and then one, one of the investigators during Veronica's second interview actually told her that the stomach contents were consistent with potatoes. But then he, but then he backpedaled on that when they started implying that she was the one who had done this. It, it, just, it was just crazy what, what they were trying to do. What okay. was missing in the investigation? The, the whole, the whole uh, problem here was the, was the fact that, uh, and I didn't realize it myself until later in the investigation, um, but when Lyric, when Lyric was discovered that morning and, and Chucky went in and picked him up out of his bed, he was wearing blue jeans, a red shirt, and a black hoodie. In other words, street clothes. And the investigators who were there that morning saw Lyric, and uh, but by that time, EMTs had been there, and they, uh, you know, Lyric's stomach was bloated when when they were there, and so his pants were real tight. So they pulled them off to ease the pressure and left them right there on the floor in Veronica's room and then took him down to the ambulance. But the, when the other investigators were there, they saw all the other kids, and they were all in their pajamas. And, and those, the kids were uh, 
uh, later, Veronica's mom came down there and they, they escorted her upstairs and she gathered up clothing for all the other kids and got them changed. And then they went over to the police station. While she's there, and, and this came up later, uh, she, she never found uh, Lyric's pajamas. But she, she didn't know the significance of that at the time. But the odd thing was... He had that Sponge, we, SpongeBob SquarePants pajamas, right? And those yeah, were his he, favorite. That's the only ones he would wear. That's right. He'd just gotten them for Christmas. And, and, and uh, like, like Veronica's mom told me, he said, most times it was, it, was, it was tough to get him to take them off. So anyway, it, it, it seemed very strange to me that nowhere along the line was Veronica or Chucky asked what Lyric was wearing when he went to bed. Uh, it was only, it wasn't until later when we were looking at the photographs uh, taken of, of his, the clothing that he was wearing that it finally registered. You know, why is this baby in, in street clothes instead of pajamas when all the other kids were in pajamas? And, and of course, when I talked to Veronica about that, she couldn't remember that morning. She said, other than seeing him blue and not breathing, I, I don't I don't remember what he had on. But but I backed up a little bit and I said, well, you changed his diaper before he went, you went to work. She said, yeah. Well, what was he wearing then? Well, he was in his pajamas. All the kids were in their pajamas. They're always in their pajamas, she said. I said, okay. And then I showed her the pictures. <laughs> she said, you're trying to tell me that he was wearing these clothes when he was found that morning? And I said, yeah. She said, I, I never put kids to bed in street clothes. So, so from that point on, I, I started becoming very concerned. Now, his, his blue jeans weren't picked up as evidence. They were never bagged. No, no, they, they, uh, they laid right there on the floor. They, they went back. The police went back with a second search warrant and later a third search warrant. Oh, I'm sure they were, they were after the good stuff then, right? That... <laughs> Weeks and months apart. They're, those pants laid right there the whole time. You can see them in their photographs. Never picked them up. At this point, I think we're safe, at least on this one subject, to get a little ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Just for the purpose of saying what the second and third search achieved for the prosecution. So, like I said, the first search warrant happened that first day, later that afternoon on the 30th. But three weeks later, they decided they wanted to go back in. Now, keep in mind, Veronica never went back to her apartment after this happened. She, she said it was too painful. So she, she never went back. Chucky went back, but she did. It wasn't even his apartment. That's another part of the story. But anyway, they decided to go back three weeks later. And uh, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why they were going. You know, did they forget to do something? Uh, you know, what were, they, what were they trying to do? But then when I read their report uh, about the results of their second search warrant, it became very clear to me wh why they had gone back. So by this time, they were zeroing in on Veronica as the killer. But they had a problem, and that was the time of death, because they knew she had a rock-solid alibi for that time period. So they had to find a way. They were looking for a way to try to push back the time of death. And the only, the only possible way they could have done that was to try to prove that the environment Lyric was in during that time was extremely warm. 
which would have slowed down the uh, the cooling process of the body. So it, and and that became rather clear to me when I read the report. So they they go into the apartment three weeks later. So the value the value of what they did just wasn't there because there's nothing to to say what it was you know three weeks earlier. But anyway, they go in there three weeks later, and they they walk into the kitchen, not not the back bedroom where this happened, but the kitchen, and they they record the temperature at 74 degrees Fahrenheit. They never they never recorded the temperature in a bedroom. Yeah, there, there was only one. A heating element in the apartment, correct? And it was, the, and the furthest from it was the bedroom where Chucky was, where um, lyric. where lyric was found. Exactly. Yeah. So they're exactly. trying to say what the temperature of the apartment was by monitoring the temperature in the kitchen, which was much warmer. Absolutely, because the kitchen was directly adjacent to the heat source in the living room, and it was just this one little space heater. So the, the farther you get away from that heater, the cooler it gets. In fact, they actually, and both Veronica and Chucky were telling them, were telling the police that it was cold in that bedroom. In fact, they had uh, they had uh, sheets and blankets hung over the windows to try to keep out the cold drafts. So, so it, 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 it never made any sense to me that they wouldn't record the temperature in the bedroom. Uh, but they, <laughs> they didn't want to because it was colder back then. And again, here's your miscarriage of justice. You know, yeah. so many ways, but that's definitely one. To actually ask and get permission for a second investigation and then to do it only for the purpose of trying to misinform with regard to the temperature of the apartment so they could move the yeah. death time back in earlier in the evening yeah, and that put was it back on Veronica. That was their purpose. The other thing they did while they were there, what, what they claimed to have done, but I don't believe they did, they, they re-examined uh, the hole in the wall. <laughs> the... The, the evidence technician claimed that uh, they had retrieved uh, broken items of the of the hole that had fallen into the wall. And I said, how, how did you do that? You know, because, you know, her arms aren't long enough to reach down in there. You, how, so how are you going to do that? You, you know, you would have had to cut a panel out below it and, and, and get in that way. But that never happened. And, of course, the whole process would have been photographed and there was no photos. So they're they're just kind of putting that in there to make it look like they did something more because they were alleging that Lyric had been slammed into this wall. And and now they're they're thinking Veronica was the one that did it. So they should have been looking for evidence of Lyric's hair or DNA on the wall or on those pieces, but they never did. So like we mentioned, uh, Dr. Terzian uh, performed the autopsy on Lyric the very next morning, around nine o'clock. So it was himself and his morgue assistant and the district attorney was there with his chief investigator and uh, the uh, a member of the identification unit was there taking photographs with his assistant. And then briefly, there was uh, one of the regular investigators there present during the autopsy. So Dr. Terzian uh, performs the autopsy and he, he he records that uh, uh, Lyric died from uh, one of two fatal injuries. One was uh, uh, severe injuries to his head, both 
the frontal and occipital regions to the head. At first, they thought there may have been a skull fracture, but it was not fractured. But it did cause uh, the brain to swell and bleed. Uh, but the primary uh, cause of death was a, a lacerated liver, which had actually become detached from the spine and was oozing blood into his uh, abdomen. And, and, and he'd lost uh, over half of his blood volume. And, you know, and then Dr. Terzian later described the, uh, the lacerated liver like the, the splitting open of a ripe tomato. And he said that either, either injury would have been fatal, but he said he died from uh, exsanguination uh, from the lacerated liver uh, before the brain injury killed him. So the investigation and the prosecutors here would have us believe that Veronica Taft beat her two-year-old toddler's son so violently that it actually lacerated his liver, causing internal bleeding. That uh, it caused that she had, uh, that she had apparently uh, tried to choke him or pick him up by the neck, leaving fingernail marks on his neck. That he had injuries all over his head and body, serious internal injuries, and that she did all this before she went to work. After the visit, after her after her visitors came to her apartment. And before she went to work at 11 p.m. that evening, and that she went to work, somebody drove her to work. They had to see if there was anything wrong with her personality, if she looked very, very upset, like she had just beat her child to death. Okay? Yeah. Uh, she was driven to work and knows nothing about what's going on there. I'm sure they interviewed the people at work. And maybe yeah, she oh, yeah. worked alone. Maybe she worked with other people. I'm sure that she wasn't showing any guilt or signs that she had just murdered her own toddler, no. which must have made her a very cold, cold customer if any of that were true. And yet we're to believe as a jury that she murdered her toddler son. Tune in tomorrow night for part two of Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story by David M. Beers. David, thank you very much for this interview, and we'll join you. Tomorrow night. Sounds good. Thank you.